Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host, and this is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, May 10th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to monitor that and periodically answer questions as they arise. And in these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news, um, but as you'll see, there's not a lot of news this week, so uh, we're, we're doing something a little bit different. Here's what I plan to cover today. Uh, as I mentioned, it's been a very quiet week at the court. As expected, um, the court uh, did, uh, didn't have a whole lot going on this week. There, were, there was no uh, court sitting this week. The court didn't uh, issue any new orders list, and there were no new opinions issued. Um, I do have uh, a couple brief pieces of news. Um, the court did rule on a last-minute death penalty stay application uh, this past Friday, and there was also an interesting lower court development related to one of the cases on the Supreme Court's docket this year. So I'll talk about those things briefly, but uh, on last week's live stream, because we were expecting this to be a slow news week at the court, I asked for um, viewer and listener questions. I got a few of those, so uh, after we get through the um, brief pieces of news, I'll turn to those uh, questions. Uh, again, if you're um, watching live, feel free to ask your own questions in the live chat. Uh, so let's dive in and we'll first talk about the couple new developments this week. The first is another in the uh, the um, series of death penalty stay applications, a regular feature of the court's docket. And if you've been watching these or, or listening to these uh, live stream episodes, you've, you've heard this as a um, a recurring feature of what the uh, of the court's work, um, but there was another of these. Now, this this was a, a, um, a death row inmate named Robert Butts, and he had originally been uh, scheduled for execution last Thursday, uh, May third. I had been uh, expecting to cover his uh, stay, up, uh, stay application for him last week. However, um, uh, the uh, well, I'll, I'll, let me give a little background first. So he, he's a death row inmate in, in uh, Georgia. He was convicted and sentenced to death for a 1996 murder of a former coworker, uh, which was allegedly uh, uh, committed uh, in order to improve his status in a, a gang that he belonged uh, to. Uh, in any event, he was he was scheduled to be executed last Thursday, uh, the day before on that's Wednesday, May second. The Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles granted a 90-day stay of the execution to give them more time to review his case. So uh, as of May second. Uh, his execution had been uh, temporarily at least called off. However, the very next day, Thursday, the day he was originally scheduled to be executed, um, the stay was lifted. The, uh, the Board of Pardons and Paroles lifted their stay, and then the execution was rescheduled for Friday, the following day. Um, so uh, on Friday, his, his legal team filed an application with the Supreme Court to stay the execution. Um, his, his basic legal theory, uh, revolved around, uh, there was, there's, I guess, two different theories he was arguing to the court, uh, both, uh, under the, the broad category of, um, cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. One was an argument that, um, under current sentencing standards, Butts wouldn't have been sentenced to death. Um, the, the key fact they point to is the murder he was convicted of was a murder involving only a single victim and only a single aggravating circumstance. Now, aggravating circumstances are um, special kind of uh, f- uh, 
facts related to a murder that make it particularly culpable. And that's uh, one thing that juries that are sentencing someone to death uh, are required to find is that there's some aggravating circumstance that makes it um, more than just um, any old murder, I guess. Um, but this was a single victim in a single aggravated invading circumstance. And uh, he argues that basically um, currently in, in, in kind of modern modern day practice uh, in, in Georgia, um, no one is executed or no one is um, given a death penalty with only a single victim and a single uh, aggravating circumstance. And he says that since 2006, there haven't been any Georgia death sentences with a single victim and single aggravator. And he argues that a key um, consideration by the courts in in, in uh, thinking about cruel and unusual punishment is uh, proportionality. And he says that this this is disproportionate given that these types of crimes are not normally punished with a death sentence. So that was one argument he made to the court. And the other was related to his age. Now, he was 18 years old at the time of the murder. Um, there's a There was a Supreme Court case called Roper v. Simmons in 2005 where the court held that it was unconstitutional to execute someone uh, who committed a murder while they were under the age of 18. So someone who committed a murder while a minor could not be constitutionally sentenced to death. Um, and the court pointed to factors like that it saying that it said that minors, there's uh, social science evidence that shows that minors lack, uh, lack maturity. They don't have a sense of responsibility. They're prone to reckless behavior and vulnerable to peer pressure um, and often lack control over their environment. Um, and so the court held, held that because of these various factors, uh, they were drawing a line and anyone under 18 at the time they committed a murder could not be sentenced to death. Now, um, in this case, uh, Butts' counsel argues, even though he was over 18, I guess just slightly over 18, um, they argue, well, two things. Basically, they argue that the 18 um, cutoff is, is, is arbitrary and that actual um, good uh, uh, cognitive science research shows that the, the immaturity that the court was pointing to in the Roper v. Simmons case actually extends into the early 20s. And so that, that uh, the fact that he was a, a little bit over 18 um, shouldn't exclude him from the reasoning um, in that opinion. And they also made another argument that due to his uh, low IQ, they say that Butts was actually mentally equivalent to a 15-year-old. And so even though he was uh, chronologically older than 18, he, he should be considered um, comparable to, uh, to a minor. Um, but uh, later on Friday, the, uh, the court uh, apparently did not see any merit to either of these theories and issued an order denying his stay application. There were no noted dissents um, and, uh, and bus was executed later, uh, on Friday evening. So that, uh, brings us to the next, uh, that, that's, that's all for that one. Um, the next is, is there's an interesting development that's related to one of the cases that's on the court's docket this term. It's a, a case I've, I've, um, talked about in, in, um, previous episodes and, um, and it's a case that we're still waiting on the, uh, for the court to, uh, uh, deliver an opinion on. And the case is called uh, Western Geco v. Ion Geo- Geophysical. And this is a, a, it's a patent case, and it's about damages for lost profits that were, that, that would have been earned outside the United States and whether the, um, the patent statutes allow someone to recover lost profits that were not within the geographic, that would not have been earned within the geographic United States. And it was about some patents that relate to mapping the ocean floor for oil and gas exploration. Now, the case involved uh, four patents that were owned um, owned by Western Geco, and and Western Geco had uh, sued Ion Geophysical for patent infringement um, on these four patents. 
Now, at the same time as this uh, Supreme Court litigation is going on, there's been some parallel proceedings happening in, in a different uh, forum. So another oil exploration company um, called Petroleum Geoservices, Inc., uh, that was also involved in litigation with um, Western Geco about these same patents, they brought a an, a, um, an action for an inter partes review, or it's referred to as IPR for short, with the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, which is part of the, the PTO, the Patent and Trademark Office. Now, uh, inter partes review or IPR, that's uh, something I've discussed also in some previous episodes of the court of uh, previous episodes of this uh, live stream, because the Supreme Court um, earlier this term decided two cases that were about that IPR process, but basically. In short, what it is, it's an, it's a adversarial process within the PTO to, to have the patent and trademark office re-examine a patent that's already been issued to see if it should not have been issued, if it's actually invalid and should not be issued, should not have been issued. So what happened is this other company, Petroleum Geoservices, brought this, uh, uh, request for an, uh, IPR, the Inter Partes Review, and the, um, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, um, they chose to review – they have discretion whether or not to um, initiate one of these reviews. They chose to review three of the four challenged patents. The three patents that it reviewed, they found all three of those patents invalid, um, finding that they were they didn't meet the, the non-obviousness criteria, meaning there's, there was prior art out there existing out in the world that anticipated uh, these patents. So they, they weren't non-obvious, therefore they're not – eligible they were not eligible to be patented so they found that these three patents were invalid now this um this decision of the patent trial and appeal board was uh was appealed to the federal circuit court of appeals that's a specialized federal appeals court that hears um patent related cases and they hear appeals that come directly from the pto and that court the federal circuit court of appeals on uh on monday this week uh, that's may 7th they, they issued an, an opinion that court issued an opinion uh, affirming the Patent Trial and Appeal Board's decision and validating these patents. So uh, uh, affirming the decision to invalidate three of the four patents that are issue in this case pending at the Supreme Court. So it's interesting. Now, the Supreme Court, the issue that's being um, litigated in the Supreme Court uh, is, you know, still a live issue. There's still that fourth patent that's still um, that you know, hasn't been touched by these, uh, the lower court ruling. Um, so there's still the issue of damages related to that fourth patent. And so the issue is still live. Um, but it's, it's, I found this interesting because it just il- illustrates that uh, these kind of legal disputes, they often have multiple moving parts and it's not, um, it's not unusual for there to be uh, related litigation going on simultaneously in, in different venues, different, different, uh, states or different, uh, different courts, you know, here it's two different parts of the federal system. And, uh, you know, although the Supreme court has the final say generally on the legal issues, it decides to hear, like in this case, the, the issue of, of, uh, whether someone can earn extraterritorial lost profits. Um, sometimes the impact of a decision can be undercut from other directions. And, and even though the Supreme court, you know, technically had the final say on that issue for the parties in this case, um, a huge amount of the damages are going to disappear, not due to anything the Supreme Court says, but likely due to this, the invalidation of some of the patents the damages were based on. So, uh, just thought that was an interesting, um, note on, uh, on one of the cases we're waiting on. Where we expect a decision from the Supreme Court in the Western Geco v. Ion Geophysical case, um, just any time between now and the end of June, as with all the rest of the uh, the court's pending cases, they could um, uh, any time between now and the court's recess for the summer. 
so with those bits of news out of the way, I'm going to move on to um, some uh, listener questions. Um, and I, I, I asked last week for some uh, listener questions, requests, if anyone had them. I only got a few questions, but they touch on some interesting areas and, and uh, kind of give me an excuse to uh, go into some ba- background about the court that, that uh, I hope will, will be interesting. Um, again, as always, if you're watching live and have any questions of your own, feel free to ask them in the live chat. Um, but I have uh, several questions that came from listener, listener Ryan Briggs. Um, and two of the questions are about the Supreme Court's regular orders lists. So I'm going to give a little background first about the orders list, just to explain for people who aren't familiar what that is, what those are. Um, and then, and then I'll, I'll try and answer, um, the, the, the questions there. So the Supreme Court regularly issues orders relating to the cases on its docket or other uh, requests that are made to the court. And, um, these orders, they can be found on the court's website. Uh, if anyone's interested in seeing them, you can find them uh, by choosing the menu for case documents and then selecting orders of the court. And those orders are arranged uh, chronologically by the court's term. Now, the court's term runs from October through the following September. So we're currently in the 2017 term uh, as the court uh uh, names those terms. Um, and the orders are listed chronologically. And orders are basically, they're li- released in two different ways. There are regularly scheduled orders lists, uh, which the court releases on, on, on a, on a uh, very predictable basis. And they have a, a large, uh, you know, usually, usually quite a few orders over multiple pages on, on various cases. And then the court also issues miscellaneous orders. Um, and these are, are more um, sporadic and unpredictable. So the orders list, the court has uh, regular private conferences throughout the term. So the justices meet in private conference uh, to discuss uh, various business before the court. Um, and from October through April, those are the months that the court hears oral argument during the term. And each uh, each month during the term, it hears two weeks of oral argument. And it will typically have its private, hold its conferences, its private conferences, the Friday before each two-week argument session, and then the Friday of each of those two oral argument weeks. So basically, three conferences per month um, is the, the, the basic um, um, schedule. Now, the, it, it's not always exactly three conferences a month because those those two-week oral argument sessions, sometimes they overlap off the beginning or end of a month, so they're not actually fully within the month that, that uh, it's named after. So something maybe um uh maybe maybe called the uh the uh, um November conference but it may actually uh start in the end of October for example so so it's not exactly three conferences per month but but on average three conferences per month um around uh, be- immediately before and and during the oral argument weeks of that month um and then in May and June at the end of the year it basically they basically have a conference every Thursday uh in the uh this end part of the term. They have a conference today, May 10th. Uh, they had a conference earlier today, May 10th, and it'll be every Thursday after this, this year until June 21st. That's their last scheduled conference on their calendar. Um, and the, 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 what they do is the Monday morning following each conference, um, each of those conferences, typically at 9.30 a.m., the court releases an orders list, which has the orders that result from 
decisions that were made at that private, the private conference. And in a few minutes, I'll discuss kind of what these orders lists look like, the types of orders that are included on those lists. Now, I mentioned also that the court issues miscellaneous orders. These typically are things that deal with more time-sensitive matters, things that can't wait for a regular conference and, and a regular orders list. So uh, a common one is, is um, requests for emergency stays. When someone makes a stay application to the court, um, for example, uh, granting or denying uh, or a stay, an application um, for a uh, stay of a death penalty. When the court issues its order granting or denying that uh, um, application to stay a death penalty, the that will come out in the miscellaneous uh, as a miscellaneous order because it'll just be released immediately as soon as the court is ready to release it. It's not waiting for a Monday morning orders list. Um, the court just rules on those emergency things, so it's ruling um, is out there and can be acted upon. Um, occasionally. Even decisions that come out of a conference that are normally the type of thing that would make it on an orders list, occasionally those things will be uh, issued as a miscellaneous order if it's particularly time sensitive. One recent example of that was on Friday, April 13th, so it was only only uh, a month ago, the court issued a miscellaneous order and it addressed uh, motions in eight different cases concerning the division of time at oral argument. So this is, for example, allowing the Solicitor General, that's the government's representative who, who um, uh, argues on behalf of the federal government in the Supreme Court, allowing the Solicitor General to participate in oral argument in several cases. Now, this was Friday, April 13th. The April oral argument session started the following Monday, the 16th, and one of those orders allowing the Solicitor General uh, permission to participate in oral argument was for a case that was being argued on that Monday. So the court couldn't really wait until Monday morning's orders list to uh, announce that it was allowing participation in Monday's oral argument, so it puts it out uh, Friday as a miscellaneous order. So that's just kind of an exception to the normal um, uh, uh, flow of things due to the time sensitiveness and, and the court wanting to get that out quickly. So what does the orders list look like? What does it typically consist of? Well, the orders list from from uh, week to week or conference to conference, the list, it varies in length and the specific makeup, exactly what's included or not on the orders list varies from week to week, but there are a number of common categories of orders that recur frequently. Now, some common features of, of all the different types of um orders on the orders list is that in general, there's no vote breakdown. The court just orders, uh, you know, issues an order that some, some request or some application or some petition is granted or denied. Um, and there's no indication of, uh, of, of any, uh, any vote, uh, how, how many justices were for or against that decision. Um, now justices can optionally, uh, record a dissent. They can indicate that they dissent from some, one of these decisions, but that's extremely infrequent. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, very rarely done. And generally there's just no indication of, um, of, uh, who voted for or against, uh, these things. Um, occasionally when a justice wants to register a dissent, uh, very rarely there'll be a, a, just a single sentence um, perhaps citing a case uh, or something like that, um, indicating that some justice is dissenting for some reason. Um, and slightly more often than that, there will be what's known as a, a, a there will be a separate opinion relating to an order. And th- these are these are uh, short opinion, usually short opinions that are appended to the end of the orders list, where a justice uh, is specifically writing out uh, their often a dissent from uh, from one of the court's orders. Um, or some other comment, uh, a statement relating to um, 
one of the court's orders. These are typically brief, sometimes as short as one or two paragraphs or a few pages. But once in a while, a dozen or more pages, they'll be somewhat longer. Um, so, so that, that's, those are, those are the exception though. The, the overwhelming majority of the orders on these orders lists are just a simple one-line order with uh, no indication of, of, uh, which justices are supporting or, or opposing that order. Um, and also these orders, uh, they very frequently use very standard boilerplate language. Uh, so you see the same, um, language, uh, repeated over and over again if you uh, view enough of these order lists. So let me run through quickly. These are kind of some different common categories. This isn't, you know, this isn't everything. This is just some uh, the some of the most common things you'll see on the orders list and not every one of these categories is going to be uh there every time. But one one category of orders, and this is the rough order that they usually appear uh on the orders list also. Um if if uh, if there are anything in this category it'll start with um a a a category for summary disposition disposition of cases. Now this is uh this includes orders that are known as GVRs. And GVR stands for grant, vacate and remand. And this is the court's process when when it uh when there's a petition uh for the court to hear a particular case and the court will uh in some cases grant that petition and then immediately vacate the lower court uh, decision and remand the case back to the lower court. Now, um, the reason it does this is because uh, generally because there's been, um, since the petition was filed or since the lower court uh, decision was made, there's been some um, intervening legal development. Now, uh, this is often a, uh, a decision by the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court may decide one particular case and then there, and there may be other petitions pending before the court on very closely related um, issues, maybe the exact same legal issue brought up in other cases. And so the court will then grant those other petitions to immediately vacate the lower court uh, decision and remand it, send it back down to the lower court, uh, basically telling the lower court, take another look at this case in light of our new decision and see if that changes your uh, your uh, your result. Um Sometimes it'll be a different type of legal development. For example, uh, if a new statute is passed by Congress that uh, directly uh, is directly relevant to some pending case, then the court might um, GVR in light of that statute. So that's the first category of orders that you may see on an orders list. Then there's there's often uh, just uh, kind of a hodgepodge of orders and pending cases. That's a category on the on the orders list, and that includes kind of a wide variety of different things. It's uh, the court ruling on various. Um, uh, motions for extension of time to file petitions, um, motions to appoint counsel in a case, um, motions for informa pauperis uh, treatment. That's uh, that's uh, uh, a petitioner who is asking to be allowed to um, to have uh, uh, filing fees and uh, and certain other requirements waived um, in order to be able to uh, file a petition without paying the uh, the costs usually associated with that. Another interesting category of uh, type of order that, that's in these uh, this general category of orders and pending cases is what's known as CVSG for short, which stands for a call for the views of the Solicitor General. And this is when the court has a cert petition before it, and before deciding on that cert petition, whether to grant or deny that petition, the court asks the Solicitor General, and that's the representative of the federal government in the court, asks the Solicitor General to weigh in on this petition and, and whether they, the Solicitor General thinks this is a case that the court ought to hear. And, uh, and the court often gives quite a bit of weight, uh, apparently to the Solicitor General's, uh, view in, in those, in those cases. So, uh, the next, uh, category that's occasionally on these orders lists is, um, is cert grants, uh, the category certiorari granted. 
Um, so this is uh, when the court has actually decided to uh, to grant a case and add it to its uh, docket for uh, for oral argument. Um, and usually this is just a simple one line that just uh, um, lists the uh, the case uh, the the case name and the docket number and says that the uh, um, petition for certiorari is granted. Um, but occasionally there's more to it. For example, the court might. Um, Add to or modify the question presented, which is the the specific legal issue that the um, petitioner has asked the court to review. Um, but usually, it's just a just a very simple one line thing granting the petition. Um, then there's the section the section uh, certiorari denied. Now this uh, is is uh, typically much longer, uh, sometimes extremely long, going on for pages, um, just listing. Uh, case after case after case that the court is denying. Now, um, if you, if, if you've, uh, been following the court for a little while, you may know the rough numbers. Each year, the court gets something in the ballpark of six to seven thousand petitions, uh, for certiorari. And in recent years, has only been granting somewhere in the ballpark of 70 or so. Um, so there are huge numbers of cases that are just regularly, uh, denied, um, week in and week out. Um, and usually there's just, just, uh, no explanation, no notation, no nothing. Um, once in a while you will see a notation that a particular justice was recused from a particular case. So it'll just indicate that, uh, justice so-and-so took no part in consideration of this, uh, of this petition. Um, then there are a, f- a few other categories that you, you often see on these, um, uh, orders lists are, uh, related to, um, to petitions for habeas corpus. Uh, petitions for mandamus and uh, petitions for rehearing. Now, these are these are uh, pretty much virtually never granted. Now, uh, habeas corpus. Um, you may be familiar with uh, habeas corpus actions where prisoners are seeking to uh, be released from uh, from custody because they say that they were they're being held illegally in some manner. Um, normally, there's there's uh, the uh, there's a statutory um, framework for habeas corpus filings where, where uh, a prisoner has to file their habeas corpus petition through the federal district court and then it can work its way up to the Supreme Court through the normal um, uh, appeals process from the district court. Um, but there there does exist uh, a, a original actions, uh, writ, uh, petitions for habeas corpus directly to the Supreme Court, but it's it's uh, virtually uh, never granted. So it's, so it's, it's kind of a, you will see these um, denials of, uh, of petitions for habeas corpus, um, but I'm not sure when the last time one has been actually granted. Uh, there's also uh, people who may petition the court for writ of mandamus. That's for an order to a lower court or a government official to uh, uh, perform some sort of discretionary action. Um, again, those are virtually never granted from the Supreme Court. And then finally, um, uh, petitions for rehearing, that's someone asking the court to uh, to rehear a case that the court has just issued some decision on. Uh, so they're, they're asking the court to relook at something and, and, and kind of do it over. Again, uh, those those are virtually never granted. I don't know uh, when the last time the court has granted one of those cases has. I assume at some point in the past um, those have uh, been done, but uh, but it's, it's extremely rare. And then the the final uh, category um, is attorney discipline, and and this involves um, orders to uh, to um, orders to show cause to to particular attorneys, warning them basically that they're going to be disbarred from the Supreme Court, and then orders actually disbarring certain attorneys from the court. So so that's kind of a, a rough idea of the types of 
things you see in these orders lists. And again, they come out typically the Monday after the court's regularly scheduled conferences. Um, but that brings me to the questions um, from uh, listener Ryan Briggs. And he had two questions that were related to these orders lists. So I'll, I'll read one of them. He says, I occasionally see in the miscellaneous orders list where it says, the petitioner has repeatedly abused this court's process. The clerk is directed not to accept any further petitions in non-criminal matters from the petitioner unless the docketing fee required by Rule 38A is paid and the petition petition is submitted in compliance with Rule 33.1. All right, so that's that's kind of some standard boilerplate language that appears all the time. And and uh and he asks, how do they typically abuse the court's process and how does the court decide enough is enough? So I can partially answer that. Uh, let me give a little background first uh, just to understand what this all means. So these orders, they relate to the informa pauperis or IFP docket. So those are the unpaid petitions. These are people that are being allowed to uh, file a petition without paying the normal cost. Now, normally, to file a petition at the court, you have to pay a, a filing fee, which I believe is $300 to file a cert petition. But more importantly, the court has very specific formatting requirements um, and the uh, briefs and, and documents filed with the court, they have, they have to be printed on a unusual special size paper bound into special booklets. There's very specific formatting requirement, including specific color-coded brief covers. And the court is very particular about all of these uh, requirements being met. And the court has to be provided with 40 copies of, uh, of, of various briefs and filings. Now, parties that are litigating at the Supreme Court, they normally use uh, specialized printing companies that, that, uh, that have kind of expertise in filing these Supreme Court briefs. And there's, there's a few of these printing companies that just have a, have a, uh, a business, uh, devoted to, um, Supreme Court filings. Um, but the costs of using these printers and, and doing these 40 copies of these specially formatted briefs, it can run to several thousand dollars just to, just to file a brief. So it's, it's, it's not cheap at all. So, the court has a process, the IFP process, where a petitioner can can uh, can make a motion to be treated uh, um, as a, a pauper. That's the you know the old term for informa pauperis, meaning they 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 can't afford the fees and costs related with filing. And what the court does is it waives the filing fee and allows a simplified format on regular eight and a half by eleven paper with fewer copies, um, just to to reduce the cost there. Now a lot of people in this category are um, uh, incarcerated prison inmates uh, who are filing briefs with the court, and they and they would qualify uh, for for this uh, th- this kind of treatment. But it, it doesn't have to be. Some people are, are not; they just can't afford those kind of fil- filing fees. So, so what does this order mean? Well, the the language there where it says the clerk is directed not to accept any further petitions in non criminal matters from petitioner unless the docket fee required by Rule 38A is paid. That's the $300 fee I mentioned. And the petition is submitted in in compliance with Rule 33.1. Now, Rule 33.1 is extremely detailed formatting information about the exact size of the paper and font and margins and all that stuff. Um, So so that's that's, uh, basically saying this person is no longer eligible for the IFP status. If they want to file something else and it's another civil filing, they, they need to, uh, you know, pay the full fee and, and follow the rules like all the other, uh, um, uh, paid, uh, individuals. Um, so that, that's the, that's the basic meaning here. This is what this is about. So, so why does the court do it? Well, there's no way to know, uh, in any particular instance without, you know, checking the individual docket and trying to look up on it. But most likely it's, it's because someone has, 
um, made numerous frivolous filings to the court or, or perhaps repeated filings making the same legal claims after being denied previously. Um, just as an example, I checked a petitioner who was uh, subject to this this type of order just a few weeks ago, and uh, she had, by my count, um, 11 unpaid petitions in the last five years, and I checked several of them, and they were all accusing various courts and other government officials of uh, various wide-ranging conspiracies against her uh, with various different facts, but uh, uh, different conspiracies by different government, government officials. So, uh, you know, apparently uh, uh, 11 was uh, was was too many, and the court uh, drew the line and didn't want to hear any more of these unless she was willing to, um, you know, uh, pay full freight. Um, so when does the court draw the line, though? That I can't answer. I, I, I have no idea how many filings it typically takes or whether there's any consistency. Uh, I, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I wonder if anyone's um, done any uh, research into that, but, uh, but I do, don't know that. But that's some basic background on, on what that language means and what that's all about. Um, so, uh, moving on to next, the next question also related to the orders list. Um, uh, the other question, the next question is, um, when the miscellaneous orders list comes out, uh, this is referring to the regular orders list. When the orders list comes out, occasionally there's an attorney discipline section. What does that process look like? What do people typically get disciplined for? Are many people successful at showing cause why they shouldn't be disbarred? Also, is it just disbarment, disbarment from practicing in the Supreme Court or is it all courts? So that's an interesting question. So first I want to give a little background about the Supreme Court bar, meaning, meaning those lawyers who are, who are, um, uh, uh, allowed to, uh, uh, practice in the Supreme Court. Now, in fact, becoming a member of the Supreme Court bar is not actually a, a, a very, uh, uh, difficult process. There's a pretty simple process. All that it requires is that someone have been a member uh, in good standing in their, their state bar um, for at least three years, pay a $200 fee, a one-time fee of $200, and have two sponsors who are current members of the Supreme Court bar. Um, so so it's really not very onerous. Any lawyer who's been practicing for more than three years and uh, is in good standing and, and you know just has to find two sponsors to, to uh, allow them to join the Supreme Court bar and then be licensed to practice uh, in the Supreme Court. So there are there are thousands of lawyers across the country who are members of the Supreme Court bar. Um, the overwhelming majority of these have never have never and will never practice before the Supreme Court. Um, some people do this just for kind of the prestige or maybe resume padding, just uh, you know like to have the nice uh, certificate on their wall that says they're a member of the Supreme Court bar. Um, there is one uh, particular perk, which is that. Uh, at uh, oral arguments uh, at the court, there's a special admissions line for uh, members of the Supreme Court bar, um, which uh, allows them to to get into oral arguments. Uh, sometimes even when, even when uh, there's a long line for the uh, the general public seating, and there's also an overflow lawyers lounge when courtroom seating is full, so people can still get into the building and uh, and uh, uh, hear oral argument from another room. Um, so that that's one you know perk that exists of joining the bar. But again, most of those people. Um, have never actually practiced at the Supreme Court. They're just, uh, uh, you know, joining to become a member of the court. Now, these um, these orders uh, and the, the attorney disciplines orders orders that show up at the, on on the uh, orders list. Generally, these discipline notices have absolutely nothing to do with actual with misconduct at the Supreme Court. Um, so, what happens is when an attorney is disciplined by their state bar. So, for example, someone is suspended or, or disbarred for some sort of misconduct 
in, in whatever state they're licensed to practice in, that state will notify the Supreme Court. And that's when the Supreme Court puts one of these orders to show cause, the notices that give some, say there's basically 40 days to respond um, to, the, to, to this notice that you're going to be disbarred. Um, but the Supreme Court requires uh, to be a member of the Supreme Court bar, you're required to be in good standing in the state bars to which you belong. So basically disbarment from the Supreme Court pretty much follows automatically um, from being disbarred from from uh, or, or suspended uh, from a state bar, so um, uh, in in the overwhelming majority of these cases, there's there's probably uh, nothing for that attorney to do. Uh, they're just you know 40 days, and they're going to be uh, put on the list uh, to be disbarred from practice in the Supreme Court because once they've been disciplined by their state bar, they're no longer um, they're no longer eligible at the Supreme Court. So so these aren't things that are, that are typically. Um, litigated at the Supreme Court, um, it's it's pretty much something that just follows automatically from the state disciplinary pro- um, process. Now, uh, there, are, there are some interesting twists sometimes. Earlier this term, there was a, there was a just an interesting uh, uh, incident that got some press uh, where the Supreme Court had accidentally um, published one of these orders to show cause against the wrong attorney. It was, there were two attorneys with the same name and uh, one attorney had been um, dis- uh, disbarred and the other attorney uh, was a member of the Supreme Court bar and was given a, one of these notices. Um, and the Supreme Court, you know, when when the court was notified that it had made this mistake and had gotten the wrong person, they corrected that and, and, uh, and, and, and rescinded that. But uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, so that, that 40 days notice kind of allows a chance to correct the record if a mistake like that happens. Um, but, uh, but that's, you know, that's just a, uh, outlier. Most of those cases are just going to be automatic um, disbarments. So um, that that uh, that's all for the orders list. So um, uh, um, Ryan Briggs had one other question. Um, and this is related to special masters. And this question was: When the court has original jurisdiction in a case, how do they pick a special master? Are there special qualifications? Is there a pre-approved pool? So uh, this also requires a little bit of background. Um, for for uh, for listeners who don't know what I'm talking about here, let me let me back up a bit and uh, and kind of uh, work my way to that question. So, first, uh, original jurisdiction. Now, I've talked about this a little bit in the past um, in uh, podcast episodes in the past, but he- here's what what that's about. The Supreme Court is normally an appellate court. It's a court that hears appeals. It reviews the decisions of other um, state and federal courts. And that's referred to the court's appellate jurisdiction. So, so that's the normal way the court functions, and that's what the overwhelming uh, majority of the court's business is: cases that were brought in some lower court, whether in the state or federal system, and then make their way up to the court on appeal. But the court also has uh, what's known as its original jurisdiction. Now, this is narrower; it's, it's uh, specific types of cases that can, that can be filed directly in the Supreme Court, not filed first in a lower court. Um, there's there's several different categories of these, but the most common category is when one state, one uh, state in the, of the uh, the United States, is directly suing another state. So state versus state action gets brought directly in the Supreme Court, and the most common types of these, um, in in at least in uh, current current times, uh, are interstate water disputes. There's lots of disputes relating to rivers, river systems, reservoirs, etc. That uh, um, cross through more than one state and uh, one state suing another for uh, overuse of uh, 
of um, of their allocation of water from the river system under various uh, interstate compacts and things like that. And and those those cases are coming up uh, fairly regularly. You see, you see, I think almost one a year uh, uh, on average of, of those type of uh, water disputes. There was two water disputes, uh, original water disputes on the court's docket this year. Um, but, uh, you know, it varies from year to year. So, um, special masters. So I mentioned the Supreme Court is normally an appellate court. It hears appeals. It's not a trial court. And, uh, for the most part, the justices on the Supreme Court don't have any expertise in running a trial court. Uh, of the current nine justices, only one of them, Justice Sotomayor, was ever a trial judge. Um, the rest of them have never, uh, served in that function. Now, trial courts have, they're responsible in our system for developing the evidentiary record. They hear testimony, they review evidence, they uh, take expert reports, things like that. And trial courts also serve an important process of kind of um, uh, through various motions and things. They 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 identify and kind of narrow down the key legal issues that are really uh, under dispute in a particular case. And appellate courts, on the other hand, they normally deal with a, a a fixed, more limited factual record and a narrower set of disputed issues. Because by the time something gets to appeal, uh, you know, most things have been, uh, you know, already decided or, or kind of resolved more or less by the trial court. And it's only narrower issues that are coming up to the Supreme Court. Um, so it's 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 very different, uh, different processes. Also, the trial court process can be incredibly time-consuming. It may involve numerous hearings, motions, uh, direct testimony, a voluminous record, um, things like that. So the Supreme Court, it doesn't want to waste large chunks of its time doing work that it really isn't well-suited to doing on cases that it may not deem to be as important as its normal appellate docket, the cases that it chooses to hear um, uh, from uh, cert petitions. So... What's the solution? What the court, court will do is, is, uh, it will very frequently, it will, when it, when it gets one of these, um, original jurisdiction cases, it will appoint a special master, um, and, and who will be assigned to, um, uh, have certain responsibilities over the, over the case. Now here, let me just, I'm gonna read, this is, this is a, a pretty, this is a kind of typical language that the court uses when it appoints a special master. It says, it names a particular, uh, person, and it says this person, is appointed special master in this case with authority to fix the time and conditions for the filing of additional pleadings, to direct subsequent proceedings, to summon witnesses, to issue subpoenas, and to take such as evidence as may be introduced and such as she may deem it necessary to call for. The special master is directed to submit reports as she may deem appropriate. So you can see from that language, it's, it's very broad, it's very discretionary. It's basically the court just saying, special master, you take over, you run this case, um, and, and the Supreme Court is kind of handing this case over to the special master. Now, the special master is essentially acting in the role of a trial judge in the case. The special master will go and conduct hearings, decide motions, take testimony, eventually issue a report. And that report is basically the equivalent of a judicial opinion. Um, and that process, in some cases, can take years to play out. There may, the litigation may go on for years and have various, you know, proceedings, hearings, motions, etc., before eventually a report is issued, which is, as I said, kind of the equivalent of a judicial opinion. Now, once that report is filed uh, by the special master, the parties can uh, they can do what's called making an exception to the report, and that's that's uh, basically the the party uh, disputing uh, some part of the the decision of the special master. 
and then those exceptions uh, are are briefed, and the Supreme Court can then rule on those will then rule on those exceptions. They can overrule the exception and uphold whatever the special master did, or su- sustain the exception and 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 reverse some part of the special master's um, decision. Um, so essentially, that converts. Uh, the Supreme Court's role in the case into something much more like an uh, appellate court. It's uh, allowing the special master to kind of serve as the, the initial trial judge, and then the Supreme Court is just standing in 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 review of uh, the special master's uh, decision. So, so that's that's just some background on what this is all about. But then, getting down to to who are these special masters? Well, there is there's there are no formal qualifications, and there's no specific um, pool of, of of people. Now, the court used to generally appoint retired federal district judges um, for, for these type of things. And these were um, this made a lot of sense because a retired uh, district judge is someone who has experience running uh, trial courts, uh, including in um, complex litigation. And they tended to be uh, relatively cheap um, uh, compared to uh, many uh, private practitioners. So that, that used to be, um, Kind of the, the standard practice, but but now uh, the court is more often using uh, private attorneys, often someone with expertise in the particular field at issue. This may be a practitioner, a lawyer at some law firm who practices in the area but is uh, not involved in the particular dispute at issue, or maybe an academic. Sometimes it's a professor who you know teaches and writes in in uh, in the particular area at issue. Someone that deals with uh, land and water use issues, for example, might be uh, called in uh, to be a special master in one of these cases. Um, as to how the court selects a particular special master for a particular case, that I do not know. The court typically does that basically as soon as it decides to take an uh, original jurisdiction case. It has some discretion over whether to take these cases. And as soon as it grants uh, one of these cases that it's going to to Take and add it to its docket. Um, it generally immediately appoints a special master, and the the dockets in these cases don't reflect any consultation with the parties. It seems that the court just chooses someone um, that it, it, it appoints. Um, so, so exactly how they come up with the the person for a particular case that I don't know. Um, but uh, but I, I, um, my assumption is it's a case by case determination based on the particular legal issues and whether there's uh, someone with uh, relevant expertise. Um, so, uh, I, uh, I had one other, um, uh, just kind of broad, uh, request. Uh, this is from Reddit user, uh, Jim Wilt 20. Um, just asked about any interesting potential future grants. Um, so, you know, we've been talking a lot lately about, uh, the, the cases on the court's, uh, docket this year, the, the opinions that we're waiting for over the next, uh, uh two months. Um, and the cases that they've granted for next year, but but what else is out there that uh, isn't on the court's docket yet, but maybe in the future? Um, and uh, first, I'm, I'm going to talk just uh, briefly just about about where you might find cases that are that are um, uh, good candidates to make their way onto the court's docket, and then I'm going to talk um, briefly about uh, two cases or two, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, legal issues, legal disputes that I think have a, a, a very solid chance of making it up to the court um, in the relatively near future. Um, uh, I'll get to that in a minute. So, so just for background, I, I mentioned again that you know somewhere in the ballpark of seventy cases will be granted per term. This term, uh, you know, is very low. The court only heard sixty-three argued cases, um, and uh, it's yet to be seen uh, how how next year's uh, docket will 
will will end up, whether it'll be uh, also an, an, another light year or whether the court will uh, be picking it up a, a little more and, and granting more cases. Um, but where will the cases come from to fill out the rest of the court's calendar for next year? Well, I mentioned the court receives about six to 7,000 petitions a year um, in recent years. That means if you do the math, it's somewhere in the ballpark of 120 to 130 new petitions a week. Um, and on average, you're only going to have uh, one to two of those out of you know every 120 to 130 petitions filed in a given week. Only one to two are going to be granted. Um, so, so the court is kind of winnowing down a, a pretty large pool into a pretty small number. So, so how might you find cases that are that are good candidates? Well, the the uh, the best place to look if you want to see just petitions petitions that are already up at the court. Um, so these are things that have already been filed and are pending, waiting there for the court to consider, um, that have a good chance of, of being, uh, of, of being selected. Um, the, the best place to go, uh, and this is, this is a resource, uh, it's anyone who wants to learn more about the Supreme Court and really wants to follow the court closely and, uh, and kind of just, uh, uh, learn more about everything that's going on with the court, um, should, should go to a website called SCOTUS Blog. Um, scotusblog.com. Uh, and that's kind of the, the premier, um, private website that's, that tracks the court and, uh, and provides, uh, news and analysis and commentary, uh, on the court. And Scotusblog has, they, they have important resources. They, they keep, uh, case pages that have, uh, links to various briefs and other documents filed in various cases. It's a great resource. Um, they also have, um, analyses of, um, upcoming arguments and, um, and analyses after the fact, after oral arguments and opinion analyses, just various, um, uh, very, uh, intelligent uh, analyses done by experts in various fields. Um, so it's, it's just an all around uh, great resource for someone who, who does want to follow the court closely, but it has a few specific features, um, that, that are, uh, uh, directed toward cases the court has not yet granted. Now, one of those is a feature known as the Realist Watch. And this is something that's done by uh, attorney John Elwood. Um, he, he's a uh, attorney and member of the Supreme Court Bar who's uh, um, argued cases at the Supreme Court and and uh, um, is often a frequent uh, filer of uh, amicus briefs and, and other filings. Now, this is a recurring feature at, uh, at SCOTUS blog where um, he analyzes uh, and, and, and tracks Realists. So, so what are realists? When the court gets these uh, petitions, the court periodically schedules uh, a certain set of these petitions to be um, up for discussion at uh, a particular one of the court's private conferences. So I mentioned that the orders lists come out following the private conference, and those orders lists are generally where new granted petitions are listed and denials of petitions are listed. So the court will set a certain number of petitions for consideration at a particular conference. Um, and what happens is, um, after a conference, uh, maybe some small number of those petitions will be granted. Uh, a large number of the petitions that are set for that conference will be denied, but some of those petitions will also be relisted. And what that means is they will be set for consideration again at another future conference. So instead of being either granted or denied, they're relisted to be discussed at a future conference. Now there's multiple reasons this might be done. Sometimes this is because uh, the court has um, not voted to take the case. The, the court has voted to deny the, case, the petition, but one or more justices disagrees with that opinion or that decision and perhaps wants to write one of these orders 
uh, relating to uh, or dissenting from the denial. So one of these orders relate uh, opinions related to an order. They want they want to write an opinion relating to the uh, um, the the denial, dissenting from the denial, and explaining why they think the court should have taken the case. So that may be a reason it hangs around. But it may also be that certain members of the court are still on the fence. They're still trying to decide um, whether or not this is a case that they want to grant, and they may ask um, to have the, the case relisted so they can give it more thought, or an attorney or a, a justice who wants the case to be granted but doesn't have enough votes to grant it may ask it to be relisted because they're trying to still persuade um, one or more of their colleagues to change their mind. Um, and also a, a practice that seems to be becoming more common in recent years is, is many Petitions seem to be just being routinely relisted at least once before they're granted, and the general um, the consensus is that the court what the court is trying to do is is doing when the court decides it wants to take a particular petition, uh, doing a last bit of extra due diligence just to make sure that there aren't any particular problems with that with that case that's going to make it not actually a good um, a good uh, vehicle for deciding a particular legal issue uh, before they make the final decision to grant the case. So. That relist watch feature will, after uh, a, each um, given orders list, will um, analyze uh, which what cases have been relisted, uh, and 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 sometimes cases have been relisted multiple times, meaning they've been up at multiple conferences and keep getting relisted. And relist cases are um, a, a are very good candidates for for potentially being granted. Uh, a, a good number of those will eventually um, become granted cases. So that's that's one place to look for upcoming uh, you know, potential upcoming cases where they may be interesting cases. The other interesting feature at Scotus Blog is they they have. Um, Petitions to watch uh, for a particular conference that's coming up, where where they will uh, uh, list a number of petitions that, that the the um, the uh, people who run Scotus Blog believe to be um, uh, have a, have a, a better than usual chance of actually being granted by the case. So the the, the petitions uh, seem to be um, uh, well presented and 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 uh, and uh, show a legal issue that the court may uh, be particularly interested in. Um, and the Scotus blog also has a petition of the day where they, they post a single particular petition um, that uh, that they're kind of highlighting as, as particularly interesting. And those are all things to look at if you want to see what's what's up there before the court, court that the court might potentially be interested in taking. But of course, there's no guarantee of uh, any particular case uh, is going to be taken. Um but that's just things that are actually petitions that are actually pending at the court. Um, but beyond that, you have all the various cases that are at any given time are working their way through the lower um, state and federal courts. Uh, and, you know, there's thousands and thousands of cases out there, most of which are, you know, dealing with matters that are just uh, have uh, the court would have no interest in taking routine um, legal uh, decisions that don't really have any uh uh, great importance, things like that. Um, but you know, occasionally there's uh, some very interesting and and um, and obviously uh, uh, either high profile or just uh, where there's obviously a, a strong uh, um, division of opinion uh, that look like good candidates for the court to potentially take. So I'm just going to talk briefly about two of these, and these are both things that I think are, are strong candidates for making their way up to the Supreme Court. Um, relatively soon. And the first uh, is about the treatment of sexual orientation discrimination under Title VII. That's the um, the employment discrimination statute. Um, and Title VII pr- pr- uh, protects against uh, discrimination on the basis of sex, but it does not um, explicitly mention sexual orientation. Now, in 
in uh, the last uh, two years, there have been uh, two different circuit courts. Uh, there was the Seventh Circuit in um, in in 2017 in a case called Hively v. Ivy Tech Community College. And then earlier this year, the Second Circuit in a case called Zarda v. Altitude Express. In each of those cases, those circuit courts held for the first time in each of those circuits that um, Title VII's uh, bar on discrimination on the basis of sex covers discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Now, this is um, very interesting because there is there is uh, Title VII is is a is a you know pretty old statute, and there's longstanding um, precedents in various circuits holding that sexual orientation discrimination is not covered under Title VII, and, and at least um, the uh, I'm not sure about the Seventh Circuit, but in the Second Circuit, it was explicitly overruling a previous Second Circuit um, opinion that had uh, explicitly held that sexual orientation discrimination was not covered by se- Title VII. So there's a very clear circuit split um, on on this issue of whether it's covered, and and there are you know there are uh, arguments, legal arguments that at least you know uh, facially strong legal arguments on both sides. The argument for it. Uh, um, bases uh, a lot of a lot of the argument is based on um, longstanding case law about what's referred to as uh, sex stereotyping, um, the, uh, saying that that uh, uh, stereotyping uh, people on on the basis of of uh, kind of um, um, what, what's considered kind of typical or stereotypical traits of of uh, men or women uh, and treating people differently on on the basis of those stereotypes. Um, is a type of sex discrimination that's covered by Title VII, and the argument uh, kind of flows from there that uh, sexual orientation discrimination uh, kind of fits under this this model of of, um, of stereotyping and should be covered by sex discrimination. Um, on the other side, there's an argument uh, based on this long history and 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 also pointing that other statutes. Um, explicitly includes sexual orientation as a, a protected category, and this statute doesn't. And also that there's been action in Congress to try to amend, amend uh, various non-discrimination statutes to include sexual orientation that hasn't been uh, successful in, 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 in many cases. So um, so there's kind of arguments on both sides about, about how this uh, older statute should be interpreted um, uh, in, in the present. So, um, I, I don't, as far as I know, I don't believe, uh, a, 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 there's this, these cases have, have, uh, have been petitioned up to the Supreme Court. I don't know if there's any petitions pending right now on, on this, on this particular issue, but it seems like an issue that's kind of, uh, primed to, uh, to make its way in the relatively near future, uh, to the Supreme Court and, and, uh, and the court will likely weigh in on that. So that's just one, one issue to, to, to watch that, that, you know, May make its way up to the court. Um, the other issue, and this is this is kind of on a on a another uh, very um, uh, politically divisive issue, um, is related to the uh, the DACA program. That's um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals um, Immigration uh, Program. Now, um, just a little little background on that. The DACA program it was the it was a program enacted. Um, by President Obama through a, uh, a Department of Homeland Security memorandum. So this wasn't anything enacted um, as legislation from Congress. It was it was done uh, purely as an executive branch um, uh, action. And what it did was uh, certain um, immigrants who uh, came to the United States uh, as minors um, were are, are are given the ability to obtain a a uh, 
um, deferred action status, which which allows them to uh, remain in the country for a limited period of time uh, without uh, fear of deportation. It's only for a limited period of time and needs to be renewed periodically in order to uh, to uh, continue that status. Um, but that was a program that was enacted by the Obama administration. Now, um, last year, the uh, Trump administration under uh, Attorney General Sessions um, issued an order um, rescinding the uh, the DACA program. Uh, so rescinding the the memorandum uh, from the Obama administration that enacted this program. And so they were acting to undo this program. Now, multiple lawsuits were quickly filed uh, against this rescission. And uh, at this point, several district courts uh, across the country have held that the rescission was unlawful and issued orders uh, ordering the Trump administration to continue the DACA program. And there are challenges continuing uh, in the various lower courts, but it has not yet made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and so that seems like another case that uh, um, has a, a good chance of eventually making it to the Supreme Court. Now, there have been attempts in Congress to uh, reach a legislative solution to the DACA issue. Um, there have also been uh, talk about the uh, the Trump administration um, kind of uh, redoing its rescission in a way that might be legally stronger and might stand up to some of the uh, um, the uh, the lawsuits uh, that caused it to be uh, uh, to be blocked. Um, but uh, but it you know it, 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 so so something could happen that that uh, kind of uh, changes the uh, the facts on the ground and prevents this uh, uh, kind of moots the case. Um, but uh, if that doesn't happen, it seems like a likely case uh, that might eventually make its way up to the Supreme Court. So those are just uh, you know two things that are out there that I'm keeping my eye on. Uh, you know, there's lots of other interesting things out there, but uh, um, uh, I think uh, that's about enough for tonight. We've we've uh, I think we've reached the end of uh, of our hour, and brings me to to uh, next week. Our next live stream will be a week from today. That's Thursday, May seventeenth at nine p.m. Eastern time. And that is our usual weekly live stream time, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Now, next week's live stream, the court, um, as I mentioned earlier, had its private conference earlier today. An orders list from that conference is expected on Monday morning, so that might include new uh, grants for next term. But also the court's public information office has said that opinions are likely Monday morning. So we are expecting... Um, one or more opinions uh, issued on Monday, uh, this, this coming Monday. Now, just as a reminder, there's only seven weeks left in the court's term, and the court has 39 cases uh, that it, we have yet to uh, yet to be decided. Um, so, you know, that's five to six cases a week on average. Now, it's likely to be backloaded more toward the end of the term. That's the, the typical pattern. Um, but it would not be surprising to get uh, multiple opinions uh, on this coming Monday. And again, the court schedule from this point um, on is that it has a conference every Thursday and it has a scheduled um, sitting for orders uh, and potentially opinions every Monday. Um, and almost certainly based on past practice, the court will add additional opinion days to its calendar later in the term. So to some in June, it, they, the court will start adding additional days. So not just Monday, but additional days in the week when it will um, issue opinions just to get more opinions out. Um, just based on recent years past practice, the court pretty much never issues more than about five or six opinions in a certain, in a given day. Six is about the max they ever issue at once. So if they kind of get really backlogged toward the end, they will add additional days and, and spread the opinions out a little more. Um, so that, and that, that will be, they will finish up, um, 
probably the last Monday of, of, uh, of June, but, but maybe they'll have an opinion day later, later in that week and finish up later in that week. And, and we should get all 39 of those opinions. So that's what we're looking for for the next, uh, uh the rest of the, uh, term. But again, next week's live stream, uh, we will hopefully have, um, opinions to talk about and maybe some newly oriented cases. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at countingtofive.com, on the Counting to Five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to Five or send an email to mike at countingtofive.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio, audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.